I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Great, thank you so much for joining us. And obviously, yes, the football is on at the same time. We were just saying, so this is what people that don't care about football look like. <laughs> but for those of you that do care about football, and actually I am one of them, um, my husband is going to be texting me when there, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a goal and I'll let you know. But apparently we should be able to hear there's some... Well, so... We'll have, to, we'll have to guess if it's an, a groan or a yeah. Like, so anyway, we'll have that entertainment in the background. Uh, so really pleased to be here with Danny Dorning, who's been a mentor, really, for me. And I met him many years ago when I was very young, research assistant, um, and was in awe of all of the work he did, all of the crazy maps that I looked at during my PhD. Um, and through the years, have tried my hardest to keep on top of all of your books. But there are many of them, Danny. I don't know how you write, like, three or four a year sometimes. Um, but I think this book in particular is really interesting because it obviously it comes at a time um, when we know that we are at a particular political juncture. There seems to be a lot that's happened in the last two years. And many of, that, many of us connect that to issues of inequality. Um, do you want to start, kick off, Danny, by telling us, in a nutshell, maybe take five minutes to tell us about what the argument in the book is. Okay, I'll have a go to, to get it down. Um, I, I've probably written too many books, um, and I'm slowing down now. And one of the reasons for calling it peak inequality is I can't stand the idea of having to write another book about inequality. But I do think that there is now enough evidence to say that in many ways we appear to be at or just over a peak. Now, the problem is that in front of us is mist. So it could be an even peak, a peak and so on, but we've gone over a little summit and we've been climbing up this hill for, you know, 40-odd years of the gap between people getting wider and wider, many things getting less uh, progressive and becoming used to the idea that inequality is a part of uh, society in Britain. What the book is, is... Uh, some new arguments, and then a series of sections, and each section is introduced with um, a new summary. But then there are papers and newspaper articles that I've written in the last five years. And it wasn't just me being lazy putting them together. It's when you look at the last five years, the rate of change is absolutely incredible, but we've become used to it. Um, So I can give you one example to do with health, Five years ago, I wrote an article in a New Statesman saying something very strange has just happened with health. 
very elderly women have lost five and a half weeks of life expectancy. This looks very odd. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the Office of National Statistics announced that the entire population had seen a 5% absolute increase in death rates in the last year, taking into account ageing and everything else. That's unprecedented. So the things that shocked us five years ago were absolutely minuscule um, compared to the position we're in today. Um, I've always harked on about income inequality being the most important inequality. It's the one I watch. Uh, The trends in income inequality, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I think, stupidly, I don't think he's Machiavellian or clever enough to realise what he's doing, but the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the last budget announced that inequality had been falling since 1990. Now, that measure, which occasionally people come out with, excludes the top 10%. But since 1990, if you forget anybody with a joint household income of over 75,000, which is probably about a quarter of all Londoners, those beneath the top have been becoming more equal. But it's much, much later dates when you begin to see inequalities fall amongst those higher up. And so one reason for calling it peak inequality is around about 212, 9 out of 10 of the top 10% began to feel the squeeze and do less well. Then about 2015, most of the top 1% were reporting slightly smaller incomes, at least in how they were taxed. And that fits in with the banks paying less, just starting to pay less because you don't pay people more in London if you're trying to persuade them to go to Frankfurt, essentially. And that's going on now. Uh, I go up and up and up, and to cut a short story, a long story short, uh, a couple of months ago, the highest paid person in Britain uh, was sort of removed from his job. That's Martin Sorrell, and not replaced. And if I had to have a particular date of the peak, this is the date of Martin Sorrell's forced resignation. Is, is the potential peak. Now, maybe it'll come up again. But we've been watching... Income inequality is like a kind of curved pile of sand. And we've been watching the bottom of the pile being pulled out and out, and eventually the top begins to go down. Wealth inequality takes longer, normally 10 or 20-year lag. Uh, however, since August 2016, we've seen house prices falling, and particularly in London. And it's amazing how hard the press and the state agents try and tell you they're not falling. Um, but really, they are falling, and the fastest way to get greater wealth inequality in Britain is falling house prices. I've already covered health, education. Educational inequalities increase when the government uh, stops funding state schools properly. You'll know that sixth form budgets have been absolutely slashed. There's been no ring fencing of education budgets. Uh, New Labour introduced 1,000 fees, then 3,000 fees, and then Mandelson and Willits did a deal, and suddenly we had 9,000 pound fees. And now we have a situation where the main opposition party in their manifesto promised that there will be no fees or loans the day after they're elected to government. That kind of thing is a peak. The last peak was a very long time ago, and history doesn't repeat. But what happens when when you hit a peak of inequality and begin to go down, is that everybody moves to the left, so you don't notice the move. And for me, the most interesting things of all are watching the Conservative Party 
begin to enact policies they would never have enacted a few years ago. My favourite, again, I think from last week, is suggesting it would be good to have three-year tenancies for families. Yes, suddenly they want that. Um, And there's a whole series of other things that Conservatives and George Osborne, increasing taxation on private landlords. Um, You could begin to see the change. And I haven't mentioned Corbyn, but clearly winning two elections in a row, and then securing the biggest swing since before 1945, uh, is absolutely stunning, let alone having a party of half a million members. I will demonstrate the graph to you here. Uh, This is the 1997 swing for Blair. It was positive, I think it's about seven points. I'm not so nerdy, I remember everything, but that was... Blair's 1997 landslide victory. They got quite close by 92. That won it. That wasn't really Blair. That was 18 years of Conservative rule and people had had enough. Blair's next two elections, negative, bigger negative. Actually swung against him. Still won, but the vote was going against him. Brown, negative. Miliband, bless him. And it was really hard, (laughs) Miliband. 1.4% positive swing. Really, really good. Corbyn, fucking ten and a half percent. I mean, see, unprecedented. The fastest, biggest swing in the history of British polling and politics ever. And I can go on and on and on with signs that we appear to be at a position of change. Part of the reason for saying we appear to be in a position of change, is that inequalities always eventually fall. Uh, Thomas Piketty is wrong when he says we were always very unequal, then we had this brief interlude and so on, and now we're back to inequality again. Throughout history, it does this. It's hard to prove because our measures in the past are not great, but those measures that we have shows it goes up and down. Essentially, you get really, really annoyed. Things change because you change them because you're annoyed. Inequality rises in... Uh, equality rises, inequality goes down. You forget how bad it was. You stop looking, you go off your guard, you start letting greedy people get money again, like they did before, and it rises again, up to a point when it falls, because it can't carry on rising forever, and inequality is incredibly expensive to have. It's really hard to have high inequality and austerity at the same time. And finally, finally, um, what has tended to persistitate falls in inequality in countries in the last 120 years is a disaster. Uh, Often a war, but a financial disaster. And so you'd have had to have some people engineer a particular economic disaster, uh, which was going to mean that the rich would be less rich, say, around about March 29th next, next year. And I don't think Empire 2.0 is going to work, but I do think that the accelerated Brexit, um, Leave didn't mean to win. They were shocked. They meant to get a narrow defeat and then to go again and to actually have a plan. It's a bit like going into Iraq without a plan. They won the referendum without a plan, as is becoming obvious now. And so the accelerated Brexit puts the UK in a position where to carry on affording to be this unequal actually probably becomes impossible. But the peak, the last peak was 1913, a peak is not a happy place to be. 
and the years, decades after the peak are not necessarily happy decades. So I'm not being overly optimistic, but at least the thing may no longer be going up. And then the question becomes, if you believe it is going down or it can go down, how can you get it down to average European levels? If you're being optimistic within 10 years, maybe 15 rather than 40. And that's incredibly important because you're essentially wiping off a generation if you do it in 40. If you do it in 10 or 15, they become just normally unequal. Not Finland, not Norway, not, you know, forget that. We're the worst in Europe. If you manage to become a normal European country, ironically, partly thanks to Brexit, uh, within 10 or 15 years, the good that you do is incredible. Uh, You can calculate the millions and millions of years of extra life people get. The better health people get, the, the better mental health, how much cleverer our children will be, how we won't be ripped off by landlords, how you won't have to spend a fortune trying to get an enormous mortgage just to get a home. All those kind of stupid things are particularly British stupid things because we've allowed ourselves to become the most unequal country in Europe. Great. All right. I'm going to pick up a few things there. You told me to to push back, (coughs) so I'm going to do it. I mean, okay, so taking your, taking your argument about peak inequality, and I, you know, I agree, when I started off doing my work on inequality maybe 12 years ago, my senior economist at the time was like, Pfizer, why, why do you care about inequality? No one cares. If you want to be a nice person, do something on poverty, otherwise just focus on growth. Um, and, it, and we have come a long way since, since mm. then. That was, um, I think that was early 2007, actually. So, uh, certainly the awareness of the issue has grown massively and the anger around the issue has grown massively. Um, but one thing that strikes me when we talk about measures of inequality or what inequality looks like today is that during those flare years we had, and, and before that we had a kind of, um, the 99% of us became more equal, but the 1% got a lot richer. It was the runaway rich. Mm. And you're talking there about how some of that has been stopped in terms of income, at least, and 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 may happen in terms of wealth, although I'm less convinced by that. But what has also happened is the bottom 5% have been, have been pushed out as well now because of austerity, because of the changes to benefits, universal credit. Of course, we've heard lots of stories about that and housing benefit and the rest of it. So actually, for me, it feels like we're pulling at both ends, or at least we're pulling at the bottom end now. So um, in terms of what that means for peak inequality, Mm. yes, in terms of income, the rich might not be getting as as richer anymore, but certainly the poor have got poorer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're right. So if you go for the most extreme poor, the number of people living rough on the streets is rising Mm. and rising every Year. So it's tripled under in the last yeah. eight years, yeah. Um, number of children who are in B&Bs is now 130,000 at Christmas. It's the highest for five years. So part of where I'm edging it or being slightly less safe is just saying some of these things have reached such points that they become noticed. So either we're going to head towards becoming Los Angeles and you just get used to stepping over bodies on the streets, or you will do something about it. And there's particular points, you know, looking at how the families from Grenville were housed or failing to be housed, watching the rhetoric about housing completely change after that fire. And it wasn't just because of that fire, it's because that fire occurred within days of an election at a time of changing uh, sentiment. On incomes at the very bottom, 
it's true for people on benefits, but not for people in work because of the minimum uh, wages. I think in West Somerset, <laughs> maybe a third of the entire population are now paid on the government minimum wage. It's almost Stalinist. And that's George Osborne. Um, and so that's people in work have been getting slightly more uh, at the bottom. But there are still uh, squeezes uh, there to come, to come through, you're right. Um, so it's but, a very visible type of inequality, like you say right now. Yes. Or if you put it another way, so 1913 uh, was the last peak. But then we have a general strike in 1926, and we have absolutely destitution in the 1930s with mass unemployment. Um, but if you were to step back and look at it, you'd actually realise that half of the equality we gained between 1913 and the 1970s was actually gained in the 20s and 30s, even while you had three, four million people um, unemployed because the wages at the top stopped going up. Mm. Uh, and the key, the key thing is that top income stopped going up. And we're beginning to see that. If you look at the Director General of the BBC, if you look at the brilliant tweeting, of, I saw some tweets today of particular BBC journalists, and why is he on that? Um, and that's what you need. You need lots of why are they on that? And eventually, apart from the most narcissistic and egotistical, you basically stop asking for a pay rise um, because it could be career-ending to get one. Um, and that happened in the 30s before. So it's freezing at the top and in some cases going down in terms of the banker's pay. Um, and then a lot of effort to get it up. But it didn't just happen in the 20s and 30s. It was trade unions, it was agitations, it was rent strikes, it was activism, it was energy. You know, these, when I go like this, it isn't some natural force. You know, this is effort, effort, effort to get it down. And then this is a little bit of laziness, not working hard enough. I blame my mum and dad. They were around in the late 60s, 70s. It's their fault. <laughs> and if any of you are the age of my mum and dad. And if only they'd known. I mean, the most similar country to Britain around about 1976, which is the last time it was as hot as this, uh, was Sweden. So you could have said, well, if my mum and dad had tried harder, could we be Sweden or even close to Norway because we have oil? But the answer is no, because we had a different problem. We had, well, we didn't have any more, but we had colonies. And part of why inequality rose in Britain is that we'd been living off an empire without even realising we were living off it. And when that income stopped coming in, people in the southeast of England were not willing to drop their living standards down to a non-empire centre. Yeah. Um, and they were basically very happy to cut off the North and cut off the poor. And they voted Margaret Thatcher in. I mean, in terms of... Um, you've spoken there about the hard work you have to do to negate inequality or fight for equality. What are the... So this isn't... I, I take what your argument is, mm. isn't that we're on a natural trajectory, that work will need to be done... What is the work that needs to be done? And on the flip side of that, what are the potential spanners in the work that you're worried about? Uh, there's lots of things that are extremely boring. So gender pay ratios, first time we've got them this April. Every college, every university, every school, every firm with more than 250 people, gender pay ratios are published. Next April, for the first time, the second gender pay ratios will be published. Do you think firms will have a look and try to make sure they don't go up? And that kind of very boring thing is part of what's needed. And that's brought in by a conservative government. Mm. Uh, the biggest thing is always political. At the turn. The irony is that 
in these long periods of change, you can't spot when Labour and Conservative come in. Um, you can't actually you can't actually see the 1945 government. People go, what a wonderful government. Actually, it was on the line. Um, you can't spot Macmillan coming in. He, in of course, he fell under Macmillan. He was progressive. He built more council houses than Labour. And absolutely similarly, as inequality rose from 79 onwards, you can't see 1997 on my graphs. It's as if 1997 didn't happen. And in hindsight, you know, what did Labour do? They did introduce 1,000, 3,000 student fees. They did introduce a few academies. Maybe it was a kind of nice idea, but in hindsight, it was incredibly stupid. Um, they did introduce more privatisation into the health service in various ways. In hindsight, it was incredibly stupid. But between these turning points of inequality, politics appears to matter less. At the turning point of inequality, politics matters more. And so politics matters particularly at the moment. It is actually now worth getting involved in knocking on doors. And you can tell yourself, if this works in 20 years' time, you could actually not knock on doors. It'll be on, on track. Um, I, think, I think that's one of the largest, um, largest factors to get it. But I don't know. You know, last, last time, <laughs> it was an enormous war. A war supposed to last a few months, arranged by the rich. It lasted for four or five years. The only people who could pay for it, the rich. So we had huge increases in taxes on the rich to pay for it. Then the Russians conveniently had a revolution. And people who were very well off got a bit frightened that they could be put against the wall and shot. Uh, now, this time we don't have a revolution. Uh, we have Brexit, which is not exactly a war. Um, but, you know, in terms of disasters, you want your disaster to be small. Personally, I, I, I think losing against Croatia might be kind of helpful, but I, I won't say any more. We're winning 1-0. No. We're winning 1-0 right now. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, I've got a few more of my own, but I just figure that the people want to come in. I can see some hands going up. Mm. Um, does any... Did you have your hand up? Oh, no. No? no? Okay. Uh, yeah. But. Two questions. Could you say a bit more about inequality being incredibly expensive, firstly? Yeah. And then secondly, did either or both of you read the John Lanchester article in the recent LRB? Yes. One of the things I'm curious about, is there a lobby group or is anyone campaigning to tax hell out of the billionaires? Because that graph that you showed, there's, mm. I think, massive consensus about that being a good idea. Yeah. And in London, we seem to have an unnaturally high number of billionaires. And if the thing he mentions in the article about how quickly and simply that change could be made in legislation then it strikes me as a really good opportunity to campaign on a political level to have that change made. Okay, I'll I'll do your second one first. Um, I mean, John Lanchester in that article also pointed out that the average 40-year-old can now expect to live a year less than we thought a few years ago because things... And that's whether, you know, a cigarette is 11 minutes of your life. So in effect, work out how many cigarettes the entire population of Britain has been given um, through that... There are many ways of doing it. Um, most European countries have bigger wealth taxes than we do. We have this ridiculous council tax, which is half in Kensington and Chelsea what it is in, in Barkin for the same house and cuts off. The scenario in which you begin to tax differently is when you're facing an economic situation where you have no alternative but to have to raise taxes. 
And that is, appears to be what the Conservatives are helpfully putting us towards. Um, so if we're just going to keep things steady, going to keep funding schools, have a health service that doesn't completely collapse at Christmas, so that you cancel all operations for two months, right? Hmm. Um, you're going to have to raise more. How do you raise more tax? Uh, property is the really obvious one. It's what Ireland did when the Troika told it. You put in a 0.8% annual tax on the value of property, 1% over a million euros, and everybody can pay it. I love it when people say, I can't pay this because my income's low. If you own a house, say a small flat here worth a million, and you're a pensioner, and you're required to pay £10,000 tax, you go to a bank and they give you a mortgage. And that £10,000 is paid for the mortgage. And then next year you get another £10,000. If you stay there for 10 years, you pay £100,000 in tax, you sell the flat, you take £900,000 and you've paid your tax. And I'm sick of people telling me that the rich with low incomes cannot pay uh, tax. You, I don't know, put five times the normal council tax on any empty property in London that's empty for more than six months. Um, the super rich have done a wonderful job of building flats for people. I mean, it's not ideal. It's not what you'd build if you had planning. You'd have playgrounds and things. Um, but luckily, we have an enormous amount of housing that's been built, and we have people on the streets. And you've simply got to encourage people not to leave property empty. And so property taxes are my favourite, but you bring them in um, because it's a necessity. You, have, you also go for higher rate income taxes that are normal in the rest of Europe, not to raise money, but to deter people for saying, I have to have a salary of 100, 120, 130 um, thousand pounds. And, and for the billionaires, um, it's, well, one, one thing is the Treasure Islands. Um, so, so the Treasure Island, we, we are currently, we are the protector of the world's worst tax havens. Uh, it's funny when people say, but how, what can you do? The world's so complicated. You go, well, imagine if you were living in the country which was actually orchestrating all of this and you had a vote. <laughs> you can do more than almost everybody else on the planet. You have more power than everybody on the planet to stop the billionaires getting away with it. The cost of inequality, uh, a couple of years ago, top 1% cost 15% of everything. You know, So that's a couple of NHSs. And then the next 2%, 3%, it's an unbelievable cost. The 1% in Switzerland, which is an average European country, half as much. And the Swiss spend twice per person on public health than we do. Um, it really is remarkably simple. Your normal European country spends 46 to 54% of GDP on public services, has good schools, has good housing, has better health. They all spend more than health. Even Greece spends more per head on health than we do. Um, but we think it's really, really important that the very, very rich get as much as they possibly can and get to keep it because, because they've run out of arguments. Yeah. I mean, I just think, just coming, coming up to that point with the very rich, I mean, isn't one of the ways in which the prevention of more equality can take place is because of vested interests? Because ultimately, even though incomes might have stopped growing at the top, people have a huge amount of influence in those yeah. networks um, and in lobbying... Oh, yeah. senior ministers etc and it's becoming more concentrated the Sunday Times rich list at least for the last couple of years has produced a league table of the biggest donors to political parties and two years ago 
it was about 17 gave, gave to Labour, everybody else gave to the Tories and a couple of others. Uh, the latest rich list of the top 50 donors, 49 give to the Conservatives and one gives to the SNP. Mm. Um, and they are getting scared. So they're actually increasing their donations. The donations, when they give half a million, it's like 0.2% of their income. Work out what 0.2% of your income is. You know, because the nice thing about the rich is they are quite tight, so they won't even... Um, but, no, they're trying very, very hard. Brexit was funded, uh, absolutely funded by the extremely rich, worried about European taxation laws coming in, stopping them doing what they do, uh, again, with the Treasure Islands. Um, so there is a... But it wouldn't... You don't become the most unequal country in Europe by accident. You know, it's a lot of hard work on behalf of a lot of very nasty people... Uh, to get us that to that position, who believed that this is for the good of patriotic greatness of Britain? Most of the Brexiteers grew up in colonies. Most of them had black servants as children. They have a particular mindset that I might well have if that had been how I was brought up. You know, all of us. You know, imagine you're brought up with servants in Rhodesia, and you come to Britain now, and you're in a rich family, and you believe that the English are naturally supposed to to rule the world and you look at what's happening, then you might conclude our collusion with those dodgy, not quite Anglo-Saxon Europeans is part of the problem. And when you begin to look into the thinking and the writing of people on the right with money, you see they have a particular set of thoughts uh, that drives them, and they have been uh, successful, the most successful uh, in Europe. We have the most successful far right. I was working out the other day European elections. I think the first European election was 1979 and there were no votes on the far right. The next was 84, no votes on, on the far right. Uh, then you get to the National Front or somebody getting about 1%, then it rises to 7, then UKIP come in and it gets to about 13, and then 2009, the Tories leave the normal European Conservative group. They haven't yet joined the other group, but if you had and half the Tory vote to the far right, the far right got 30% of the vote at European elections. And if you go to 2014, at which point the Tories are aligned with the Polish Law and Justice Party and Alternative for Deutschland, the neo-Nazis in Germany, in 2014, this is in hindsight. You know, who saw it in 2014? In 2014... I mean, aren't you undermining your argument a bit right now, Danny? Because in a no. sense, like, I think you're right that we've, you know, obviously incomes at the top have stopped growing. There's yeah. issues of wealth. But we've got a very schizophrenic type outcome right now. On the one hand, you know, you can look to Corbyn and the movement of the left yeah. and young people getting more involved and think, this is great, this is the pushback. At the same time, you do, do see the strengthening of the right, and obviously not just here internationally. Yeah. So with, what is no, it that's ultimately giving you hope that me. we're going to beat that? Okay, 2014, remember before Corbyn, uh, of those people who voted in European elections, 50.5% of British people voted for a far-right party. If you call, realise that our Conservative Party at that point was 50.5% voted for a far-right party. Since then, UKIP have absolutely plummeted. And the Conservative Party are doing quite a good job of not getting on with each other very well. I'm not saying it's the peak. 2014, Tolina, I'm saying this looks like what it looks after a peak. You know, and you don't notice a peak at the time of a peak. In fact, you're... You're, in, you're immune to it. You've become, you know, you just sort of... But 2014, the majority of the British people who voted in an election voted for a party that by normal European standards 
the parties they voted for were far-right parties, not conservative parties, not able to be normal European conservatives. That's how weird we became. And we didn't notice it because you get used to being weird. Does anyone want to pick up on this peak inequality argument or ask another question? Yeah, uh, yeah you can see the two gentlemen at the back. Um, I have a question, which is that um, it becomes quite apparent when you, when you talk through your your research on this and your views is quite... Can I hold the mic a bit closer to you? Oh, sorry. Yeah. It becomes quite apparent as you talk through your, uh, your studies on this. You, you have quite strong, I think it's fair to say, moral and political views about, about the fairness, the rightness of it. To what extent is it possible to study something like this and maintain, if you like, objectivity? I, I can see you could yeah. have absolute empirical data about it, but do you think, does that become a difficulty or something that you challenge yourself around? Yes, I, I can I do that first because my memory is no good. Okay, all right, go um, Now, I see it as a natural experiment. So I think you could quite fairly in the 1970s have said, here's the theory. We let people just try and get what they want. We let the market run wild. And the outcome, and you can produce equations that would say the outcome for all on average will be better. Um, I don't think I'm particularly moral. It is just so immensely stupid that, that's my problem. It is the outcome. You know, we... I, I, I'll try not to throw statistics at you, but this is... You know, back in 1990, we were the seventh best in Europe for neonatal mortality. 2015, we are 19th. Since then, we've had absolute rises, more babies dying, specifically. We are now heading for 10 years to be below Romania. And by the way, this is British mothers-born babies. This is not immigrant babies. They're healthier. When I was born, 1968, a baby in Portugal was three times more likely to die than in Britain. Portugal was the basket case. You're now much better off to be born in Portugal. We've run the experiment. It's like, you know, I'm going to make you lot smoke for 30 years, and you lot are not going to smoke, and we're going to look at the outcome. And it's not moral. It's not, I mean, I like smoking. You know, I'm into the freedom to let people do this. I smoke myself. But it becomes blindingly obvious that this thing is immensely harmful. Uh, tests of ability and numeracy across Europe, who are the slowest children. And it isn't that our children in private schools are particularly clever. They're just taught how to get an A star. doesn't mean they're any good at maths. And I can go on. And it, it's, it's not, for me, I don't think it's moral. It's not a sense of what's right or proper. It's a sense of frustration with the fact I'm still having to bother to argue this. And I've had to argue in Parliament the other day with an MP, who admittedly was a young Conservative in the 80s, who was trying to come up with all kinds of reasons these things were happening other, you know. And, and just to say, we've ruled them all out, you know. And it's, it's not, for me, it's not moral. A more unequal country that resulted in higher standards of living and a better chance of a baby not dying, because the worst thing that happens in life is watching a child die, I would absolutely go for it. Um, just because, you know, my personal morals are the most important thing is health. Anything that improves the health of people is worth it. Almost anything. And I would happily have as many billionaires as possible if the more billionaires you had, the better off your children were. But the point is it's the very opposite is what we're getting. Thanks, Annie. Let me take that other question at the back. Yeah. Thanks. Um... I've I got a lot of ideas bouncing around in my head from what you said. Um, 
firstly, you know, you've got a lot of metadata you've been analysing, and it seems that you've come up with a, a sort of sociological theory, a big sociological theory about a sort of collective unconsciousness, which at a certain point um, responds by sort of saying, well, this is too unfair, and there's sort of social reaction. Um, I remember from my days of studying, I've studied sort of the causes of revolution and all the rest of it, and there were a lot of theories, and it's not... It's it's connected in terms of social change, but there were a lot of theories about what triggered revolutions, whether it was uh, a rapid decline in economic conditions that made people poor, or whether it was uh, when economic conditions were improving for a while and then they suddenly dipped and that triggered things and and so on and so forth. A lot of different theories. So I'm quite interested in hearing how you sort of arrive at your idea. The other thing is that um, you're kind of projecting from the past to a certain extent. Um, and some economists and others are arguing that we're now into quite a different kind of economic situation. Of course, it's a very unstable, you know, sort of rentier economy, uh, financialized um, economy, uh, not like anything we've had before. And perhaps, you know, there is a chance of a very sudden crash. It's very unstable, and that would maybe fit in. But how do you feel about the idea that perhaps you can't project in the same way and that maybe we are in a very different kind of social and economic situation yeah. from the past um, th- those two questions are related uh, my, my worry is that you can't and so we might not be up to dealing with this collectively and out of the crash that is to come or whatever occurs in the next few months and years very rich people will benefit even more and we will actually collect it, by we I mean 99.9% now well, it's fair enough to say we, from, you know, truly including my vice chancellor, not just me, you know, <laughs> in the ninety nine point nine percent. The worry is that that we may be entering something new. The positive news is on the Gini coefficient for OECD countries, the majority of them inequality is falling in most countries. There's only the USA, and until very recently, the UK were the two ones. It's, it's collapsing in Chile and other places. It's still very high, but uh, most countries in the world now have falling income inequality. It's just not very sexy to report it, so it doesn't get reported uh, that it's happening. Theories as to why... Um, my, little, my little theory about Britain is it's about the upper middle class. When the upper middle class begin to lose out, by which I mean people in the top 10%, when they lose out, it's very hard to control things if you're just a 1%. So an example would be the NHS. The upper middle class got into a situation in the 30s where they were finding it hard to pay the private doctors. It was actually in their interest to have a national health service, so we partly got it. Margaret Thatcher in the 80s managed to award the top 20 to 30% of society. Uh, they got richer as well as the people at the very top getting much richer. But in the last 10, 15 years, people not in that top 1% have had their child benefit taken away, have seen national insurance rise, have not seen salary increases, have felt squeezed. The house prices of the kind of house their children might or flat, their children might think of getting, has become impossible. I was at a talk last night uh, where somebody was saying about how he bought a house 20 years ago that was three and a half times his salary 20 years ago. If he was to buy the same little house in the same very poor part of London, that would be 22 times. 
um, the upper middle class not being able to get the mortgage. Um, it's then now the danger is a clever conservative party works out what they need to do to feed that group of society, and then you can fool ninety percent of people. Uh, but they they're well beyond trying to do that, and they're not managing to do it. But it's not a very sophisticated theory. I. I think it's very unlikely we're going to get revolution just based on how frequently revolutions actually occur. Um, But a big run on the pound. I'm amazed how relaxed people are about the situation in the City of London and Brexit and passporting. Um, You've got to remember our European neighbours from the mainland are far cleverer, more numerous and more sophisticated than we are politically. And the idea that they are going to allow themselves to be ripped off by British banks in the years to come yeah. in return for what? And this is the lovely thing about Brexit, because I couldn't be sure before Brexit, the only comparator we have is Greenland. And Greenland spent three years negotiating because Greenland's got fish. They're still alive and there's a lot of them, unlike the fish in our waters. So Greenland spent three years negotiating and got a deal which meant they're still European citizens because they could be Danish. We haven't got fish. And I know it sounds cynical, but if you're trying to understand what's going on at the moment, what exactly are we bargaining with? And this is quite painful. And one repercussion of a country becoming really, really unequal and you only get this unequal if you base increasingly getting your profits off finance because you can't do it. You know, our manufacturing is now 10% of the economy and shrinking. Um, Dyson, you know, Dyson's always put up. I think it was 20 jobs in Milesbury. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to a visible situation. Um, there's a car factory in my home city of Oxford that used to employ 40,000 people, now employs 3,000 people. Uh, one and a half thousand, half of them are Eastern European men. It's there because you can't make people work under those conditions in Germany. Um, but because we opt out of social charge, you can make them work for the number of hours with only a 20-minute break. But six of the lines are robots. And <coughs> 1,200 robots, each the right size to put in an articulated lorry. It's 1% of the entire manufacturing output of the UK. 1,200 lorries and it's there on the Austrian Czech border, you know, and that that's the game we're that's the game we're playing, and we're, we're thanks to the Brexiteers, they may well have accelerated things. Mm. Just a couple of things on that. I think you've pointed there to sort of new changes of things that could increase inequality further. So, automation and technological change. I mean, is that something? No, it needn't do. Um, but what would need to happen for that? Because most people, when they do the numbers, they do the number crunching, most of the studies will say this is going to increase inequality by X amount because a lot of the jobs that are being automated are those no, that are no, 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 We don't have the welfare state to protect no, it. I mean, no, it's because they're not imaginative. If that my city of Oxford, 40,000 people, mainly men, working in this car factory in the 1980s when I was a child there, absolutely awful conditions, the noisiest place you've ever been in. It was terrible. Um, the automation is wonderful. You've got to ask why we've still got one unautomated line left. Do we have fewer jobs in Oxford? No, we have more jobs than ever before in Oxford. We have a huge <coughs> increase in things like hairdressers. 
Men now get their hair cut by a hairdresser. They didn't in the 80s. It was a bowl and some scissors. Um, but you can create many, many more jobs. But the, the great thing about automation is the automation that we have, and Japan is at the forefront of this, takes away the mind-numbing jobs. Making cups of coffee. You buy coffee from a machine in Japan. A machine can always beat a human being on making coffee. Don't believe the stuff that says that you know, some <coughs> special coffee-making young person is making you special coffee. The automation is taking out the jobs you would not want to do. You don't want to work in a call center. You want a computer talking in a call center because none of you would want to sit there for six hours a day. And I haven't seen yet any job that somebody would want to do given a choice that has been automated. Right? And human beings are incredibly good at creating things for us to do. That's why we have an 80% service sector. You know, we didn't used to have that. Yeah. How can we suddenly need all these service jobs? Um, but they're quite I, badly, they're often quite badly paid though, right? And I think that's the point. So we're moving, so yeah. a lot of the jobs where the automation is happening, have yeah. started, I take your point about contact centers, but historically have had higher levels of Well, the car factory had a higher level of pay, yeah. Yeah, and therefore... But that's because we're Britain. Um, these jobs are not badly paid in other European countries. Mm. People are paid more to cut hair. Um, Switzerland's my favourite. I once went for a meal, just once, uh, when I went on holiday with some friends in Switzerland. We only went out once, not every night. And we had some cheese that was melted and some wine. And the bill came to £200. And the chef came out and shook our hands. And the bloke washing up the dishes came out and shook our hands. Because they were all getting paid so much money to give us some melted cheese and wine. I mean, this is slightly facetious. But and a cleaner is paid £30 an hour in Switzerland. Which means you do a better job of cleaning. Or you don't hire somebody to clean unless you really need them to clean. I think, you, you know, the point here, I mean, I remember going to Sweden for the for the first time when I was um, in my early 20s. And, and everyone there was tipping at 20%, say. And, and it's obviously also a frame of mind that goes with more equality, right? People are willing to pay, pay people more, pay cleaners more, um, spend more on these things, be taxed more um, in order to have more equal outcomes, in order to have a society that works better where they don't see as much homelessness, etc. Does What are the signs that we are moving to a different frame of mind where we're willing to pay taxes? Are we, I mean, are you... Are, are you looking at the polls that people saying, yeah, I'll pay more taxes for the NHS and thinking, yeah, these are all positive signs that we are, mo- we are moving to a point where... No. Um, I mean, the problem is that if you ask people if they'll pay more taxes, they will say yes. Um, but when they go in the ballot box, they say no. Yeah. You know, we've still, we still got the Conservatives on whatever it's 44. Um, uh, what's positive is the anger. So, for instance, it was announced two years ago that chief executive officers in, in Britain had had on average a million pounds pay cut, the first pay cut for 50 years. And the response was, they're paid too much. Apart from me, when I went, that's incredible. Uh, but everybody else who thought it was just angry. And it, it's, yeah. that's, where I'm, that's where I'm seeing something. We no longer see people say... Uh, isn't it good they're paid so much it shows what a useful and worthwhile person they are, which we did in 2005 and six and seven. Pay, we got to an American point almost of seeing high pay as being a measure of somebody's worth and not questioning it. 
and we we're moving away uh, from that. And I, it's these things don't happen quickly. I mean, this is one that, in general, apart from so the only the way for a fast rise in equality isn't even a revolution. The only really quick way to become more equal is to lose a war so absolutely that the invading American force, after dropping two atomic bombs on you, takes the land from the entire aristocracy and gives it out as equally as it can to the people. So Japan has, is the example of the fastest ever rise in equality in world history. But that's, that's the quick way. The much slower way, which is more normal and has happened to the Netherlands and Switzerland, is this gradual improvement because once pay drops at the top and the world doesn't end and you no longer say but we need top talent and in fact they're slightly more pleasant and nicer and even better at their job and it can happen again and again and the other thing is realising that you know when we talk about pay at the bottom um, it's our children, it's our cousins, it's our nephews and nieces we live in families which are not all quite so homogeneous. Um, and you begin, you begin to get out of that mindset that says, if you just work hard, you can make it into the 1%, which is a ridiculously enumerate mindset <laughs> uh, to have. Who else has got a question? Um, if I want to... This is a sort of slightly offbeat question. Um, if I want to do something good, do I press for higher taxes or more houses? Uh, higher taxes. Um, because we already have more houses per person than we've ever had before. Um, you can measure the number of bedrooms. We've never had more bedrooms per person, partly because extensions have been built. So London has more bedrooms than there are people in London forgetting all the hotels. Everybody in London could sleep on their own. Nobody's got to sleep together with anybody else. Um, Kensington and Chelsea and a few brothers around it have dug down over a hundred Grenfell Towers beneath the ground in those basements and almost all of those rooms are empty they're not being used you've got these wonderful high-rise flats built along the Thames just waiting to be occupied Um, so you don't need to build more houses there is a case in Oxford it's the one place where I think you can make a case that you do need to build more houses. Um, what's happened in London, and it's partly right to buy and not having a right to sell to replicate it, is that maisonettes in which a family grew up, mum and a dad and two kids, have been bought. The landlord now rents them out on the market. A single young professional lives in a maisonette instead of four people. The single young professional is pissed off because they're living on a former council estate. Um, and it's incredibly inefficient. So we've managed to prove how inefficient the market is hmm. at the allocation of housing. Um, it's, I'm, being, I'm being a bit facetious because housing only lasts on average 150 years. So you do need to have a build. We also need to build apartments without stairs because we're going to age. Uh, you need to build them near to where the existing housing is because you do not want to go to Newcastle when you get old if your friends are in London. Um, so there's things, but taxes is... By far the most powerful route. Um, Piketty and Tony Atkinson and their American colleague produced this wonderful graph that had all the main economies of the world 
their inequality level and what's happened to their top marginal tax rate. And those countries that kept the same high marginal tax rate since the 1960s or 70s have got low inequality and much higher standards of living. And the two countries which reduced their tax rate the most, which was the UK and the USA, have had the biggest increase in inequality. And I was once told that when, I forget in which year it was happened, when the Chancellor of Exchequer brought the top rate down to 40%, you could hear the cheering in the City of London as it was announced in the budget. And that was one of the most disastrous things we ever did. Not to raise money, top tax, top income tax rates control greed and explain to people that you have a social contract and that we're not a society where we think that only a tiny number of people are wealth creators and if we don't let them do it, we're all doomed. But we've done a great service to the world because we've shown it doesn't work. Um, somebody was going to show it doesn't work and us in the United States yeah. have... The only two Western countries with falling life expectancy. Um, it's kind of, what else do you want? You know, do you want asteroids to arrive from outer space and land on us? There's yet another thing we thought wasn't, a, wasn't influenced by inequality, but turns out it attracts extraterrestrial bodies. Yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I've got not to do this, but I've been looking at this for 25 years. And you rarely look at something academically for 25 years, and your job becomes easier and easier and easier um, as, as the amount of evidence mounts up. You know, this was quite tricky in the very early Labour years. You know, it was quite hard working out what was going on. There was lots of good feeling in the Labour Party. They, they were trying to abolish child poverty. It's very hard to measure these things one or two years. But recently, I never thought I'd be reporting on absolute rises in mortality rates. I was always talking about complicated relative ratios of things in the past. Yeah. Um, whereas now I'm talking about you know, absolute immiseration. You know, something that people used to laugh at people measuring or, or talking about, you know, it's a few old trots who used to talk about absolute immiseration in the past. We have got absolute immiseration. This is what the beginnings of it feel like. And you either put up with absolute immiseration or you do something about it. So do you want to give us a bit of an idea of like, sort of, there's obviously things around tax and things that we yeah. talk about. If you yeah. could name a couple of really bold ideas that you think we're not thinking about that you would tell if you were seeing Corbyn tomorrow or John McDonald tomorrow, you would say, you know, you need to think seriously about X and Y. What would, what would you tell them? Um, I think they're going to have to plan to have less money. So I may not be popular with people that, but I think the country is going to have uh, less money in the future. I know you can borrow and so on for your way, but I, I, I think the sensible plans would be ones uh, that save money. And so things you could do to save money... Uh, is the immediate abolition of academy schools, which is just very, very wasteful. But you have to have a, you have to have a plan in place. People are producing plans. Minister Ben, I heard, has written a draft of a plan. Um, you don't just go back to 1970s bog-standard comprehensives with schools. What I did to save money um, is, say, where I live, where there are six secondary schools in my town, I would merge them. You have exactly the same buildings, but one senior management team, not six, you can move the teachers between them. You, if you make the road safe, you can move uh, the children between them. And you can actually create a far better school because you no longer have the sink school uh, than the local dodgy private schools. Um, but you know that's one thing on, on education that could be done. Uh, 
social care, we are going to have to find money very quickly uh, from somewhere. That's one of the things you can't avoid. But there's absolutely no need to pay 2% on defence. Uh, you explained to Donald Trump that you're dropping it to half a percent rather than two. Small, that's only one and a half. If we want to become a normal European country, we've got to increase our public expenditure by 10 percentage points. So decimating repeatedly the defence budget only gets you one and a half. Trident going gets you a fraction, but obviously only a murderer would want to have (laughs) weapons of mass destruction um, for a tiny country like us, so that can go. Um, There are many things that we currently do that we should stop spending money on doing them. I would question how much money we spend on people going away to university. The normal model in Scotland, the United States and Europe is you go to your nearest university. I would try to increase the proportion of people going to nearest university by not funding the ability to live away from home just because it's it's strange and very expensive um, to do. Uh, but that's that's not easy to do very fast, but it is, a, it is a weird thing. The reason why Brit- Britain, England, has this model of you go to a different university than your hometown is because we had to create a set of people who could go to a different country. So at 18, we teach you to go to a different city, and then at 21, you go to Nigeria, particularly if you do geography. My subject was the subject of creating clone officers. So there are lots of things we do which are strange and expensive that we can that we can stop. Apart from unless doing. you're trying to get away from your family so they don't know what you're up to. That, <laughs> that is tricky, but, but we'll have to become... You know, a country like Sweden has the highest proportion of people living on their own. Japan also very high, not just because of the ageing. Um, and they're two of the most equal countries in the world. If you want the freedom to actually be able to live on your own, which is costly, you have to become much more equal so that you can afford to do it. Yeah. Um, Thoughts or questions? I think it was if someone else had their hand up. I was just wondering what you thought the motivation of the super rich actually is, because I mean we're very we throw around the word greed quite easily, but uh, I I don't know what that means. I mean, you know, you can only eat so many meals, you can only have so many things in your wardrobe. I mean, you know. I, I suspect that it isn't about greed. I think there's something else in the mindset. Um, and I, th- I think it's probably, in a way, it's to do with a kind of tribal thing that um, when you measure yourself against other people in your tribe and that's what other people in your tribe are doing, then you have to do it too. Otherwise, you're out with the, with the program. Yeah. Um, so... I, I, I just wonder what your thoughts are about, are there ways we can think about changing the mindset and challenging the mindset? That Are there ways in which the super-rich can actually see the error of their ways and, and live differently? You know, how, how would that happen? Um, there haven't been that many studies. One I think is the best, it's not an academic study, it's Robert Peston's book on the very rich, and it's about 330 pages long. And it gets really interesting in the last 50 pages where he thinks no libel lawyers will be reading it. Yeah. And he goes into the personal histories of men. It's almost always men who become very rich. And often they've had a tragedy when they're young. I remember one he saw his parents die in a car accident in front of him. Um, it very often involves a death. And so if you're trying to 
explain how did you end up with a billion from, say, just inheriting, just inheriting, but two million. There is often a reason like that. But also some particular drive, some kind of high level of narcissism, and I'm going to keep going. An incredible work ethic. I mean, they're not lazy. They, they work every hour uh, that goes. Luck for every 100 people who try and do this, 99 fail. And it's actually luck that means every deal works and you don't uh, drop down. But the fascinating thing is it's the first man. And then the children are not, I, would, I should not use the word greedy because you're right, Adam. The children are not like their father. And the grandchildren are much less different. So Abigail Disney, uh, Walt's granddaughter, and one of the Rockefellers, who's a grandson, wrote a letter two years ago to the New York Times asking to be taxed higher for the good of society. And in general, after five generations, the wealth of a super-rich family dissipates, um, which is one reason that family trusts are now set up. It's set up by the greedy father in the first place. I can't help with greedy. Um, to stop the profligate offspring wasting the money. Um, but they're a very interesting group. You can see them rise and fall in the super-rich list, uh, particularly driven men. I'd love to measure their testosterone level. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you can look at different countries. And in America, they're lauded and encouraged and allowed to get far, far more than here. And in most other parts of Europe, they're really controlled by the social environment, by what is respectable, what is an achievement. Um, and certainly outward signs of flaunting your wealth is disapproved of. And so that doesn't happen. And their children will very often go to a state school. This is the richest people in other European countries. Yeah. Uh, some of the richest people in Tokyo go to a particular state school in Tokyo. And that just seems anathema to us. So, and so put, put people with that predilection in them and with that kind of tragedy early on in their lives that happen everywhere and elsewhere they will behave in, in a better way um, and then they you know they often create quite nice charitable trusts from some of the nicest of Swedish ones you know yeah I mean actually you made me think of something that um so you know how how you understand the super rich but I'm doing this mad thing that I never thought I would do which is running to to be the Labour candidate in Chingford and Woodford Green to run against Ian Duncan Smith at the next election um, and, uh, and actually what strikes me there and I, I grew up there amongst a lot of working class people and is that sometimes the working class working class people voting against their own interests so what's going on there at the other at the other end where essentially they're voting for this Tory man and they just think that's something that they should do. They don't. They don't connect with yeah. the idea that the, the Tories are, make, are making their lives more difficult. Well, it's a chance and there's respect. And you know, remember, at certain times, the Tories did do things which benefited people. Um, the right to buy was the biggest wealth transfer to the poorest ten percent that's ever occurred. Mm. The wealth of the poorest ten percent went from three to four percent of all income. Whereas Labour, it was you're always going to be a tenant in that house and you can never paint, you know, your outside walls and you can't have a porch. You know, there are reasons why working class people don't always like uh, mm. the Labour Party. Um, but there's, there's great variation. You know, you're, you're in your class normally because you're born into it. But you have enormous variations of personality that may come with your genes. So just because mm. you're born into working class 
doesn't mean you necessarily believe in social solidarity and you're particularly a sociable person. You're just born, and just because you're born in the upper middle class doesn't mean you're, you know, greedy and you don't ever give money to somebody on the street asking for it. You know, there are very wide variations within each group. And people are also fooled. You know, they, there's a reason why the very rich own these newspapers. It's not because they're interested in good quality journalism. You know, let's just put it that way. There's an enormous amount of effort to convince people that it's in their interest to support patriotically their country, their troops, and the party of true leadership. And Ian, you got to remember, Ian's been unemployed. He has a terrible life. You know, and he had to live off Betsy, had to his wife and her lady, lady and her estates had to look after. But he tells that story, and he looks sincere. And when he went up to Easter House in Scotland, I didn't believe him. But, you know, but it was, it almost looked like he was trying to care. So he puts in a lot of work yeah. um, to try to... So on? The deserving poor. Oh, oh, and you, you divide the deserving poor away from the scroungers and so on. Yeah. And the idea you've got a chance, it's like, you know, why do people buy lottery tickets? And you buy lottery tickets, and a bit like you vote Conservative, because you're voting for a chance... Uh, for you, and if your children ever become better off, at least they'll be in a society where they won't be overtaxed. And that view, uh, I get, is very, very uh, common. And you also, people also vote against the stereotype. You don't want to be labelled as uh, poorer and so on. You want to be labelled as aspirational. Yeah. You know, I, I, I lose count a number of times when I used to live in Sheffield, in a kind of average area, Sheffield, that people were saying in the corner shop, I'm buying the Daily Mail because I'm middle class. Not, not realising. And, and, and for them it was. You know. So and we're all deeply, deeply affected by how we think other people look at us and by respect. Um, and it's easy. You know, I'm looking at a particular set of people who I can mainly stereotype because of the not too much interest in football. You know, but I can stereotype you in other ways. But you all get far more than the average respect of the average person even in London just through what your lives, your lives are. And, you know, and it's ridiculous. I'm an academic. He gets a ridiculous amount of respect, which makes it much easier to get through life. Yeah. Um, you know, people actually look at me, whereas there's a whole series of jobs where people don't look at you. They don't actually see you're there. Yeah. Two things. Um, Wilkinson was around in the 80s, theory of inequalities in mm. relation to health. So that's been around really some time. Mm. And the second thing is, I'd like you to comment on how the collection of the information, the statistics that you work with, has changed with different governments. Oh, okay. Uh, Wilkinson's first theory in his very big, thick book, I think for the New Press, uh, was he was very, very early, Richard Wilkinson. Um, I mean, he, the very first date he had, it was only just there. Uh, Richard Wilkinson is slightly like Jeremy Corbyn. He is absolutely terrible at selling a message. Very luckily, he met Kate Pickett. And the reason why the spirit level became big is that Kate, and they wrote it jointly, knew how to cut 80% of it to something that could be read. And That's what I was taught in medical school in the late 70s and 80s. You went to a good medical school. Well, I did, yeah. but, but in the 70s and the 80s, I remember 80% of GPs were conservative. Whereas now... 80% of top young doctors at least are labour. So we've got incredible um, change. And your second question? 
because I turned around. How data is changed. How data is collected and how that changes. Oh, well, the current government, obviously, but we've What's had. happened with the census? <laughs> they won't cut it the last minute if they do. They tried to cut the last census. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that there were contracts with the arms companies who are processing the forms. Marconi Mission Critical Systems actually processed your census form. Uh, and, and so uh, the government couldn't cancel the 2011 census. Three times since 45, the Conservatives have come in and cut OPCS and ONS's budget by 25%. They hate statistics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely hate them. Uh, we've had no decent HMRC statistics for three years. Um, and this is a pattern. Whereas the best stats we ever get, you shouldn't get me on, uh, Howard Wilson uh, appointed the best director general of what was then OPCS ever, Klaus Moser. And we got the 71 census was the most detailed census ever. It allowed us to know who had a hot tap in their kitchen, everything you'd want to know to plan a Swedish kind of society. Um, on the left wing, people believe in facts, they worry about them. Now, they get very concerned if somebody finds they've made a small mistake with their fact. And on the right wing, they just don't give a damn. I mean, Twitter's incredible. I'm in a Twitter spat with somebody at the moment. I must not do it. And he keeps on sending me things. The latest one was, most Labour MPs send their children to grammar schools. And I, I sent him back and I said, most counties don't have a grammar school. They're not putting their children on a train and sending them 100 miles to school, and what's more, Labour MPs tend to represent areas where there are no grammar schools. He just ignored that and came out with the next lie. And this man was a, a single-person kind of Russian troll machine. Um, and that there is this difference in... Because if you're on the right, as the man said there about morals, it's all about what is right. And you instinctively know that human beings are different, some are born to lead... The lower orders just don't get it. They need to be controlled. Hunger helps them work harder, but you need more pay to reward the gifted. And you just know that, and you're taught it in schools. I mean, why else would your school... Unemployment statistics were manipulated yes. over the years. What was counted? Yes. What was yeah. yeah, they still are, but more sort of subtly now. So, And in a way, we have a new category, which is forced labour. So we have the highest rate of employment ever because we have the highest proportion of people ever being forced to do jobs they don't want to do. And we have the lowest rising productivity ever mm-hmm. because the price surprise. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between, in general, uh, the left, which is more careful, worries more, gets depressed more often mm. about things, thinks it will never get better, and the gung-ho right, which goes, Empire 2.0, the Commonwealth is just waiting for us to happen. Forget all your experts and all your stats. Just take back control of Parliament. And like George Osborne said, by 2030, and he said this before, George Osborne said, by 2030, we will be the richest country in the world per capita if you follow my economic plan. <laughs> and I know, I don't know what George was taking. He's taking something, yeah. <laughs> how on earth? And I assume he's simply, because George isn't a stupid man, I assume George Osborne simply assumed that the majority of people watching him would believe him. And he knew it wasn't true, but he wanted to carry on being in power because he sees the other side as being absolutely terrible. And he had targets. One target the Treasury had uh, was that the higher house prices are in London, the better. Because the most successful city in the world 
is the most expensive city in the world. The market determines the winner. So he did help to buy and so on to keep you quiet. But well, help to buy inflates house prices ultimately well, anyway. So yeah, yeah, which increases success. But, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. What did you mean by HMRC? HMRC are the only source of what the, the 1% take um, because only HMRC know the incomes are the best off 1%. They, they don't fill in surveys. You know, so the only way is the tax records. And even then, of course, we know that some of them are avoiding tax entirely. HMRC have not released statistics for three years. The Resolution Foundation, in the back of a recent paper, have had a rant about how terrible it is. So uh, they, they, they were providing those stats before, and they sort of provided them Yes. Three years. Under Gordon Brown, HMRC produced average incomes by different types of employer for every local authority district in the country. Uh, you could discover that the average self-employed person in Kensington and Chelsea and Westminster was earning over 100000 a year, and the average self-employed person in Barrow, which is probably a window cleaner, was getting thirteen. Um, so Gordon Brown loves stats, and we got huge amounts. It's, it's entirely politically, political control. Uh, ONS are being very brave at the moment. ONS are releasing things like the biggest absolute rise in deaths out of wartime. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed at them um, doing it. They're the only public body I've seen who are being brave, and they're just doing their job. Um, but at least you've all got ONS. But you decide on the next census in late 2019, if we still have a Conservative DUP government in late 2019... You could easily see them just not put... There has to be an act of parliament to have a census. And you just say, it's too expensive this time, we'll wait another 10 years. Um, the great thing then is you get the family historians. And there are millions of them. Um, and if you can galvanise the family historians um, who are untapped political force... Yeah. Thank you. I, I want to say about 100 things, but obviously that's not appropriate. Um, I wondered what you thought about the universal basic income. I wondered what you think Sadiq Khan can do. Um, I wondered if you had an opinion on the Enclosures Act. <laughs> no, I've seen many. Okay. And I wondered if, um, like, the Tories' approach to the cutting all the local authorities is sweat your assets, you know, ramp up car parking, all that crap they're selling all their assets off. So why are they getting away with that hypocrisy? That's okay, that's okay. Um, universal basic income is a good idea. It is entirely possible. Uh, there's been... I wrote a book a few for Karen. She might even remember the book. Um, it's a big, thick book by European academics. So 300 years evidence on basic income. You get this poo-pooing in Britain of oh, it won't work because some families have disabled children and they need more, and it's just a sign of our stupidity. Over um, the, You bring in a basic income, there's various ways of doing it, you bring it in at a relatively low level. What you're trying to get it to is a level of subsistence where if you choose not to work, you can live. One of the reasons you do that, apart from freedom, and to get an incredibly productive labour force, because people are really productive when they've actually chosen to do things, but one reason is that some people will choose to do nothing. And that's the fastest way to reduce global warming we know of. Um, so apart from anything else, there are many reasons for... But and there are loads of experiments going on in Europe and it's going to come in and the question is, are we going to be the last country uh, to get it? Gordon Brown actually paid 
uh, and Chancellor paid some people at Southampton University to model it for the whole of Europe uh, to work out what a European basic income would have to be. Um, because if you have a European basic income for every European citizen set at the same amount, it doesn't go very far in Berlin nowadays. It goes much further on the outskirts of Europe. And so if you're worrying about people coming from the outside in, they're more likely to stay where they are. Um, I just, that was an anti-immigration argument. <laughs> it was partly where it was to make it so that you only chose to move if you wanted to. So it's all about increasing, increasing freedoms. Um, but in Britain, for, particularly from charities, Joseph Rowling Foundation recently, you get these articles saying basic income won't work, and I just think it's a sad indictment to the state that we're still in. That you know. I mean, I have to say that I've been a big fan of some of the stuff that's coming out on universal basic services because mm. my my problem with UBI is that, and this always comes up, by the way, every yeah. event I do now, UBI will always come up, and. That, um, yeah, I think there's definitely a place for it. One thing I worry about is something that is easily taken by the right to then be like, you can, you're going to get this money, but you can start paying for services. Well, we can privatise the NHS because you've got the cash to pay. Whereas for Universal it, yeah. Basic Services, which is, is a really good report from UCL about this, which is essentially cheap, very cheap housing, um, very cheap energy, uh, very cheap. Uh, free health and education, of course, childcare in that, social care in that, um, that suddenly, one, that takes out a lot of expense from most people's lives. And secondly, that's much harder to undo because once you've given people free childcare service, they're not going to want to give that up. That's going to make you incredibly unpopular. Whereas with tax and redistribution, yeah. it, it's much easier to just take that out. We'll, yeah, we'll them. Them I think it's away. much stickier to do the, the basic services thing. Well, I, I, I do both. Um, mm. One of the biggest ones for a Chancellor is, is one of the fastest ways to make things better at no cost is to get the cost of housing coming down because it comes down for everybody. Um, and you get the cost of housing coming down, partly you don't worry about house prices going down. You want them to go down to German levels because that becomes cheaper than to house yourself. But you control rents. And now even the Conservatives want to control rents. Mm. Um, and that improves the standard of living for everybody. And if we're, apart from a few landlords who'll have to go on fewer cruises or sell their property to somebody, which will be a young family able so to This is something do. that Sadiq Khan can do in London, just coming so back to the Sadiq, question what Sadiq Khan apart can from, do. Apart from um, granting licenses for balloons, I thought was wonderful, <laughs> you know, for the Trump one. Um, I mean, Sadiq, Sadiq's powers are not as wide, um, you know, as, as you would necessarily uh, want. Um, he can show uh, continued loyalty to the new move- movement and direction of the party. I think that's one of the, one of the key things uh, that he should do and, and show he's part of and understand what's going on. And he could look at, if, if Labour come into power, John Healy, who's the housing minister, has said that they'll pass a law allowing immediate compulsory purchase of agricultural land at agricultural prices. There will be agricultural land within the M25. Um, you allow the government to buy that at agricultural prices and do things uh, with it. That just saves lots of money. And why would anybody complain? All they had was an agricultural field. They weren't possibly holding on to it because thinking they could make a lot of money for doing nothing. Um, so, so you get into that mindset. There were other... Housing is the big one, I think, for London. It's the, it's the biggest issue in London. Uh, so Sadiq could help identify 
how we will get people off the streets in a relatively short amount of time where the vacant property is that could be requisitioned. One of the first things that the Conservative and Liberal Democrat coalition did when they came into power, one of the first acts of Parliament was to change an act of Parliament that said that if a property is vacant for six months, it can be compulsory purchased. And they changed that to two years. Um, So it showed where their interests lie. If you don't want to see people uh, on the streets, you need to have somewhere for them to sleep, you need hostels, you need beds. People die six times less in a hostel than on the streets in London. Um, So Sadiq can at least put inside the plan. And when you have the government to do it, you can say within 100 days, there'll be no need for anybody to be sleeping on the streets of any of our cities. And those kind of things sound utopian, but they're actually the easy ones. Um, It's much harder dealing with the deteriorated states of hospitals. You can't just find new social workers for the half of all adult social workers we've lost. How do you find people who are going to drive around and deliver the meals and wheels to the half of meals and wheels that we've lost? You, you can't just start them up and fund them again and get the kitchens, school kitchens to make meals and wheels. But all those volunteers who are no longer doing it because there were no meals for them to take to elderly people anymore. Um, that There is an incredible rebuilding of society job to be done. And the easy wins are things like providing hostel accommodations for people but you do them first. The other thing is you need to do lots of things very quickly, um, which is what the Conservatives do when they come into power. So you do Act of Parliament, Act of Parliament, Act of Parliament, Act of Parliament. So first 100 days, go for it. Yeah, and the Daily Mail is writing about something that was three days ago, and you just keep on going um, very, very quickly. You don't have lots of time left, so I'm just going to take the couple of questions I saw. This one here, yeah. You've pointed out a lot of ways where the United States and the UK are a lot more similar to each other than the UK is to other European countries. Anyone who works at a UK university hears lovely tales of, wouldn't it be great if we could encourage the culture of philanthropy that Americans are known for? I I assume it can't be so, um, so effective at reducing inequality, otherwise we would have seen America be a very different place. In, In Kensington and Chelsea, they invited... Uh, since people pay so little in council tax, they invited the most wealthy people to voluntarily up their contributions to council tax, and apparently 300 people gave the extra £800. Um, do, do you think the American culture of philanthropy is statistically significant, and why do you think Brits give less? Why do Brits give less than Americans? Um, I mean, um, Americans give to things that will give them name recognition, like buildings and so on. They don't give to charities for children who are poor in America. So, but in Britain, we give far more to animals and children who are poor. Um, the poor give more to charity, but in general, charity is an incredibly inefficient way yeah. of, of funding things. British universities have been privatised. You know, they've become marketing operations. They hardly any, only a billion pounds a year coming from the states, state, as they used to be nine billion. Day after a Labour government or a Labour SNP coalition, because of course Scotland is different, day after, suddenly they are nationalised again. It's in the manifesto, it'll be in the next manifesto. You're looking at an incredible change. As far as I'm aware, no university is planning for this, because no university senior management group thinks a Labour government is possible. 
They're terribly worried about Brexit Mm. and what will happen to overseas students and why are we losing the staff that we exploit the most, which are the young European staff, which is a a bit annoying if the ones who work really hard go, um, for the English people like me. I was in a study recently of universities that found that the tier of senior professors are almost all British and English, and it's the associate professors underneath. And I, I once, this is in Sheffield, I went to the pub with the 13 admission officers of the 13 social science departments at the University of Sheffield. And we're all sitting around having a beer. And they told me that not one of them had taken an A-level because not one of them had been educated in Britain themselves. But they'd been made admissions officer. And it's a kind of punishment job. <coughs> you know, you've got to look at all the UCAS forms and so on. And they were saying to me, what are these A-levels? Um, and those are the ones who are going to go back. So, so that's hard. Uh, philanthropy was your question. It's incredibly inefficient. The, the amount of exploitation that has to happen in the world to get one £5 million building into a Oxford College is, is just stunning. The amount of oil you have to take out of the Arctic um, and, and so on to do it. It's just not a good model. And the money always just goes to the very big prestige projects and the poshish universities uh, the lovely thing for the poshest universities, this is Oxford and Cambridge, and a little bit London, is you don't need philanthropy, you can simply open your door to tourists. And we have enough tourists, and they're a steady stream of income, you serve them green teas, you charge them more if they want to wear a cloak, you charge them even more if they want to sit at top table and look like Harry Potter for the night. The undergraduates wouldn't know who they are. Um, and you can do this kind of thing, and it sounds facetious, but when we became more equal in the past... We stopped building university buildings out of stone from donations from philanthropists and we started building them out of concrete. Uh, and if you go to a normal European country, you'll find that the building is often quite shabby, but the teaching going on within them is brilliant. Whereas in a posh English university, the buildings are wonderful with the name of whichever billionaire gave the money. But what's going on inside is whatever keeps the paying customers happy, which is not the same kind of education you give when it might be your own children going to the local university, it's dramatically different. But we've got into this philanthropy culture um, as part of the, gro- of the growth of inequality. And it's, re- it's really interesting to look at where they want their names. They want to be immortal, some of these men. And so they're putting their names on particular buildings and particular places. And they don't realise that 30 years after they're dead, you know, that building might be demolished or with the name... You know, apart from colleges, apart from colleges, the names don't actually survive that long on the buildings. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say from just my experience of philanthropy when I worked at Save Children, which was a very bad experience in multiple ways, but I mean, Bill Gates was one of the funders there, and and when I worked there, Ebola, the Ebola virus had, had rampantly grown, and there was you know a whole health team that were working on it. Now, um, one of the things that they were pointing out, and one of them had worked quite closely with the Gates Foundation, who for for a very long time had been telling the Gates Foundation, don't focus on this particular vaccination, focus on making sure that there's more health centers, right, and infrastructure. Mm. Um, But he wouldn't have it because of it, you know, it's partly about his ego saying, wanting to say that I stopped this disease or, you know, and so what happened is that great, you did great on malaria. Meanwhile, Ebola, Ebola's kicked off when you don't have the health centers to help people. 
So it, it really struck me that the thing about philanthropy, when people with a lot of money that think they know what they're doing, but don't necessarily, and are driven by their ego, it is, like you say, that an incredibly inefficient use of that mm. money. Um, and actually, it would be much better to, ta- to tax yeah. it and, and yeah. use it in other ways. I mean, it's... Anyway, Bill and Melinda are two people. And the idea that they, in their brains, can work out. I was once in a meeting in the UN at the Economic and Social Council where they're producing the annual economic and social report of the world. And this report was the one that's going to concentrate on inequality. It's never been published. And somebody just said to me, Bill won't like that. And Bill funds that part of the UN building in New York. And if Bill doesn't like it, it doesn't happen. So you hear a lot about these horror stories. So, yeah, Mm. I'm not... And we find it really worrying, the push for philanthropy in this country. Mm. Um, let's take one last question and then we'll wrap up. And it's 1-1 one, one now, by the way. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll take, if there's any final thoughts or final questions or... Yeah, yeah can I ask one question? Yeah, yeah. You, you've convinced me that the crisis is coming. Okay. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's coming quicker than most of us imagine. So we've got to start acting quickly. Now, one of the fears I've got is that actually the super rich, as we keep talking about, includes everybody in this room. Mm. And it talks about that those people need to give up resources now, in particular because they're living off the younger generation. Yeah. And I would wondered if you've got any thoughts about how do we manage that balance going forward? Yeah, how will we do it? It's a good one to end on. Um, you know, I do think the run on the pound is coming. It's going to slip... It, it is things like, it says, what can we do without? Um, now, this is very good weather to talk about not going abroad on holiday. Hmm. Um, but one of the things that, that we, that is just the better off and the very rich, have changed our behaviour over the last 20, 30 years, is we now expect overseas holidays. The majority of people who fly on EasyJet are ABC1 social class, which is not the poor. Uh, the Trust for London did a survey of minimum income standards, and then pensioners in in the London, so there's a minimum, you should be able to afford two holidays a year. Um, We're going to have, I think, to go back to normal rates for the better off people of having holidays. Half of all children in London have no holiday a year, none. Whereas people like us, when you think holiday means one night away from family and friends is a holiday, not staying with granny. So think about how many holidays you might have had in the last 12 months and think half the children have had none. Um, so you're back to fewer holidays. It's no longer Tuscany. might even involve a tent. Um, and then the same thing with cars. Do you really need a brand new one? Is it about status? Um, there's a lot of things where we can look at what they do in other countries, what's the normal way of behaving of people in other countries, and we're more profligate. You can buy fewer clothes and they can last for longer. And it's the middle class who can do that the most because they actually buy more clothes. We think the working class are profligate, but they just don't have the money to buy as many. Think about your wardrobes. I don't know. And just how full are they? So this isn't quite hair shirts, but it's we've become used to an escalating amount of consumption. And the people who are going to have to cut back are us. But the great thing is, as long as everybody does it, you don't feel like you're missing out. We've only increased it because you heard somebody else went to Tuscany and it was rather nice. You know, now it is rather nice, but the world doesn't end if you can't go to Tuscany in the summer. And cruise ships, that's what I'll end on. 
the, the big rise in cruise ships. Cruise ships are the most dangerous possible concentration of people for disease you can ever get. You know, if you want a good reason to cut back on that kind of thing, I, I can't understand why people take the risks of going on cruises. You know, it really is very, very, <coughs> very bad. But it's stuff. And the other thing that, that happens in a more equal country is you do things that are more similar to other people. You don't have a separate social life that is that much more different uh, from them. And currently, we tend to. We don't think we do. You go, I've got the same social life as everybody else like me. And that's the point. It's everybody else like you. You've got an income which is two, three, or four times higher than people in the bottom quarter. I routinely ask people in London where an underground station is. And I'm routinely shocked they're local and they don't know because they never use the underground because it's so expensive. And they don't know the underground station around the corner. We're living parallel lives and we've become used to living parallel lives. And at the end of peak inequality, you begin to live less and less parallel lives. The last time we were this unequal, the most common uh, job in the country for women was being a servant. So we have the same income inequality now as when we had the highest number of servants ever. They're no longer called servants. They're not in our houses anymore. But the primary school teachers in London and in my town, in a way, are servants. The, the characteristic of being a servant was you couldn't start a family because you lived in the house. And very often primary school teachers are renting. They can't afford to start a family. They're sharing with other young professionals. And so we've created a new society of servants and masters. And we find it very hard to imagine it's going to go away in exactly the same way as in the 1920s. Imagining that you might not have a scullery maid was really hard to do. And what a terrible world it would be by the 1960s if you didn't have that. And that's what's going to happen to people in the top 10%. We will not have people serving as in quite the same way that we've got used to. You won't necessarily, quite so frequently, be able to press a button and expect a man, often with a different skin colour from you, to turn up in 30 seconds with your car. You would, it's Uber. You would only do that if you actually really needed a taxi. And I'm not exaggerating. Last time I was in Japan, I was with some colleagues and we had to get somewhere to do some teaching. I said, let's get a taxi. They looked at me and they said, we only do that if it's an emergency. And I was and I, old enough to remember, oh yeah, that was my childhood. In the 1970s, you only took a taxi if it's an emergency because it is not a fun job driving around all day uh, for other people. I'll end there. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Danny. Um... Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.